been a long season for us. Um, it feels like every week there's a different wall that we hit, a different wall that we then jump over, and then a different wall that we hit. Um, so, for instance, I mean, Sam and Sam worked so hard this morning to get the words up there for you. So, thank you, thank you, Sam, uh, and thank you, everybody who's been helping move the tech around, figure out issues. Uh, we're, th- we're not we're not killing it in this area, but we are working hard and. And we were moving forward uh, because really the, the purpose of being together is not to put together the perfect service where everything goes right. We want that. Uh, the purpose is worship. The purpose is that we can get together as the body of Christ to worship Him or at least to be together uh, through, through the internet so that we can worship as one family spread across, across the region. And so that's what we're doing trying to maintain unity, even while so many things threaten our unity. Um, a couple of things concerning our unity. Number one, home groups. If you're not a part of a home group, uh, if you've never been a part of a home group, it's more important now than ever. This is the easiest time to disappear, to feel disconnected from your church, to be disconnected from your church, but home groups are the best way that we come together as a church family. So if you're not a part of a home group, if you've never been a part of a home group, this year's the year. Uh, sign out or, or fill out the back of that form, put it in the basket on your way out. Second thing, uh, this retreat, this church retreat that we're doing, not next weekend but the weekend after, it is a little bit late notice and I do apologize for that. This door opened for us uh, a little bit later than we expected. If you want to feel reconnected to the church family or if you want to become connected for the first time to our church family, this would be a great way just to start making some deeper relationships Info's in your bulletin. So be praying about that as a family. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. That's where we are today. And once again, what we find is a letter from the victorious Jesus Christ to the church in Pergamum. A letter from the victorious Lord to Christians. You know, over and over again, as we go through this book, the eternal truth of Christ's victory, it gives shape to our current reality. That's something that we really want to take away from this. It shapes the way that our lives look today. That He is alive, He is among us, and therefore, wouldn't that change things? Wouldn't it change things if the eternal God was actually with us, if He actually cared about us? It's going to change the way that we face things that scare us. It's going to change the way that we respond to things that threaten us because they will not overwhelm us because the victorious Lord is with us. I mean, we've seen that in every letter so far. In in Ephesus, what we saw is that Jesus' presence and power, it clarifies our motivation for following Him. That we don't just follow Him so that we can do the right things, but rather so that we can return to the love that we had for Him deeply desiring that relationship with Him. That was Ephesus. In Smyrna, it changes the way that we suffer for Him. How we can stand firm in suffering because the suffering One, Jesus Christ, He has overcome. And He will give us the crown of life. And now we're moving on to Pergamum. You know, my deepest desire for this series is that these letters would help us think more and more about how having a victorious Lord who loves us and is not far from us will change everything about the way we live. So let's look at the church of Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. The letter to that church. We'll read it, then we'll pray. 
and to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, sorry, on the stone, that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pause for a moment to pray. Be free. God, we're not here this morning just because it's what you do if you're a Christian. Uh, We're not here this morning just to fill our minds with more information about what your word says. We're not here this morning only to reconnect with people we love. Rather, Lord, the reason that we're here this morning is for you. God, we want to worship you together. We want to know you more truly through your word so that we can worship you as you truly are. We want to come to delight more fully in who you are because of this fuller knowledge of who you are. We want to sing with one voice so that you can receive praises from your people. Father, everything we do, the goal is that you would be worshipped, that you would be glorified. That is the reason that we're here. And so, Father, I pray that today as we grow in our understanding of you and our knowledge of you, we would at the same time pour forth greater praise to you. Father, be made great in this time. Make us more like you. May our lives glorify you more and more, Lord. Shape us, mold us. Don't let us stay the way we are, Lord. Change us so that we can make you happy in the way that we live and respond to all things, Father. We want to live as people who are near to the God who loves them. And live obedience in obedience to that God and in the delight of that God. We want that to characterize us today, Lord. So, Father, today, if there are distractions, if we're just not quite here yet, I pray that now you'd help us tune in. If there's distractions from things that happened this morning, maybe struggles with kids, help those things just settle down uh, in in, in the back of our minds. Father, if we're distracted by what's coming later on today, I pray that you'd help that, help us put that off till later so that, Lord, our only focus this morning would be on you and what it looks like to live for you. So we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Our God is great. He is truly great. If he wasn't, we shouldn't be here. That's not where we're going today. I just wanted to say it. (laughs) So in Revelation chapter 1, we see this picture of God, right? And it's this glorious picture of God. It's meant to shock and awe us. 
And one of the things we see about Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, is that Jesus, the victorious Jesus, has a sword coming out of his mouth. It says that from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, Revelation 1, 16. Now in this passage, as the letter starts, Jesus points back to that. He reminds us of it when he says this, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now Jesus points back to this particular element of who he is for a reason here to the church in, in Pergamum. It's a picture that they needed to see because obviously as so much in the book of Revelation is, the sword is highly symbolic. I'm sure you could probably guess that the sword is a symbol of judgment. It's not hard to see why. But this short sword, is, we're told that it's a sharp sword. It's sharp, meaning that it's exact, it's precise. And what that tells us is that God's judgment isn't willy-nilly, it's unerring. It doesn't make a mistake, it's, it's precise. He will not execute judgment on those who do not deserve it, and he will not fail to execute judgment on those who do deserve it. He won't make a mistake, he will not err in his judgment. That's what it's getting at when it's talking about it being sharp. It's not just sharp, it's two-sided. Why is it two-sided? Well, because his judgment is impartial. It doesn't matter what side you are on. It doesn't matter who you are. Sin is serious. And so no matter who you are, he will execute judgment upon it. That's what the two-sidedness is symbolizing. And finally, the sword is coming from his mouth. The reason why the sword is coming from the mouth of Jesus is because he will pronounce perfect judgment. He, the great judge, will pronounce perfect judgment unerring, impartial justice. And so this is the picture that's given to the church in Pergamum. Right here at the beginning of the letter, they are reminded of this element of who God is. And they are given this reminder, this specific church is given this reminder for a reason. So hold on to that image of Jesus, the perfectly just one, who is holding the sharp, two-edged sword. Let's move on. Because through this time, we've talked about these different towns. We've talked about these different cities. These were big towns. And so it makes sense that everybody from an entire region, they would gather together into towns, much like happens today, for a couple things, right? They'd come together for commerce, for business, and they'd come together for worship. So it, wouldn't, it shouldn't really surprise us that Ephesus and Smyrna were hard places to be followers of Jesus Christ, specifically because they were centers of worship. The same is true of, of Pergamum. Pergamum, too, was a religious center. Uh, re- Pergamum was known for the worship of many different gods, actually. They did have a few temples uh, to, uh, to, the, uh, to the emperor as well. But the one temple that really stands out in Pergamum, in ancient Pergamum, is something that you can actually go see if you go to a museum in Berlin today. It's a recreation of the great temple of Zeus that was on the citadel of the city of Pergamum. You know in Rio de Janeiro, the, the Christ the Redeemer statue? It's this massive statue overlooking the city so that no matter where you are, you can look up and see Jesus. It's a similar thing in Pergamum, only rather than Jesus, you saw the temple to Zeus. And what was amazing about this temple was that it was shaped like a massive throne. And so when Jesus is writing to the church here and he says, I know where you live, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, 
it's likely that he's referring to the fact that these Christians are living in a place that no matter where they are, when they look up, what they see is a constant reminder of the paganism that they're living in. This is not an easy place to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Constantly reminded of paganism and constantly persecuted for not joining in the pagan worship. And so this is how verse 13 starts. It says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So it's a hard place, awash in paganism, awash with persecution. But then he commends them. He encourages them. He says this. He says, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Now, we don't know who Antipas was. But what's clear here is that this church in Pergamum is that even in the face of persecution, even in the face of death, their faith remained strong. They kept going. They did not turn back. They did not renounce Jesus. They did not turn away from him. And so Jesus says, guys, well done. You're doing that well. But as is true in most of these letters, that's not the whole picture. (laughs) Not everything's great in Pergamum. So let's keep going. Look with me. Verse 14 and 15. He says, but I have a few things against you. A few? (laughs) That's new. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. All right, so they're doing well. They're not turning back from Jesus. But this is what Jesus does have against them. This is what they're not doing well. They have people among them who are holding to the teachings of Balaam and to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, we've heard about the Nicolaitans. Jesus specifically condemned the Nicolaitans in the letter to the Ephesians. And we don't really know what the Nicolaitans believed. That's lost to history. But we do know who Balaam is. At least you do if you've read the book of Numbers. In the Old Testament, the fourth book of the Bible, right near the beginning... We read this story, it's an incredible story, it's a really crazy story, and it has to do with this man named Balaam. So let me tell you this story about Balaam. The people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. You might have heard about that. And God, with his mighty right hand, came and he delivered the people of Israel from Egypt. He sent plagues until God delivered them and and brought them out into the wilderness. He brought them up to the edge of the Red Sea. He parted the Red Sea. He sent them through the Red Sea. And so the people of Israel came out on the other side in the wilderness of Sinai. Now from there they went up to the promised land and God... Uh, brought them there, and the people of Israel, they sent a couple spies into the promised land to see what this land was like. Now the spies came back to the people of God, and they said, well, we don't want to go there. The people there are big. They are scary. They got big, massive walls. We can't take over them. And so God punished them by leading them in the wilderness. For 40 years they were in the wilderness until an entire generation of people died. But even while they're in the wilderness for those 40 years, God stayed with them. God's continued fighting for them. He continued protecting them. And so it was during that time in the wilderness that we read the story about Balaam. Because the people of Israel are moving towards the promised land, winning battle after battle after battle, coming closer and closer and closer to the promised land. Now, understandably, the people of the wilderness, of the kingdoms out in that region of the world, they were getting nervous. And one king in particular was getting nervous. It's the king of 
a kingdom called Moab. So let me read you a little bit out of Numbers chapter 22, verses 3 through 6. It says, Moab, one of the kingdoms, was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. Verse 4, so Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pithor, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse the people for me, since they are too many for me, or sorry, too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So in a nutshell, this nervous king, King Balak of Moab, he calls this mercenary holy man named Balaam. He calls Balaam, understanding that he, the Moabites, they don't have the power to overcome the people of, Egypt, of, of Israel. And so he calls Balaam to utter a curse upon them, to pronounce a curse on the people of Israel. And so for the next two chapters, chapters 23 and 24, Balaam tries four different times to pronounce curses on the people of Israel. But God delivers them. Because every single time Balaam opens up his mouth to pronounce a curse on the people of Israel, God puts his words in Balaam's mouth. And the words that come out of Balaam's mouth are not curses, but they are blessings. Four different times God pronounces blessings upon the people of Israel. Go read these sometimes. We find the Messiah in these blessings. It's wonderful. So why is it that the very next thing we see in Numbers chapter 25 is this. That while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal at Peor. That's the, that's the idol. And the Lord's anger burned against them. What happened? They just received four incredible blessings from God. How did they turn? What happened? What, what, what caused them to fall away? We have the answer because Moses tells us in chapter 31, verse 16. This is what he says. He says, Behold, these women, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the midst of Peor. And so the plague came against the congregation of the Lord. In other words... Balaam tried and tried and tried and tried to enter, pronounce a curse upon the people of Israel. That was plan A, but when plan A failed, he moved on to plan B. And what he did was he hired Moabite women to send them in to seduce the people of Israel into sexual immorality and paganism. What Balaam did was he sent in his plan B army to cause the God of Israel to turn in judgment against his own people, and it worked. That's a crazy story. <laughs> if anybody says the Bible is boring, they haven't read a lot, a lot in the Old Testament. This is, a, this is an amazing, interesting, strange, strange story. But when we turn back to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, this story is what Jesus is talking about. 
It's this Balaam that Jesus is talking about when he says that you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. So what is he talking about? What's the teaching of Balaam? Because strictly speaking, Balaam, he didn't teach anything. But he did do something. He did do something that turned the people of God away from the one true God. Balaam caused Israel to compromise their allegiance to the one true God. Let me say that again. Balaam caused the Sorry, Balaam caused Israel to compromise their allegiance to the one true God. Balaam shamefully used sex to lure them into idolatry. And so what is Jesus saying to Pergamum? What's he saying to the people in Pergamum? What he's saying is this. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. In other words, there are some among you who would have you compromise your allegiance to the one true God. There are some among you who would encourage you not just to worship the one true God, not just to worship me, Jesus says, but rather to also worship the other gods around you, to worship me, but also burn incense to the emperor. To worship me, but then also make occasional offerings to Zeus up at the throne. Do you, do you see why this would be tempting? I think it would be tempting to us if we were in Pergamum. I mean, the reason being, man, you, you just burn a little incense and nobody's going to think you're a traitor anymore. Or maybe just, you know, make an occasional offering and, hey, nobody's going to think you're a part of some strange sect that doesn't, that doesn't worship all the gods. As far as persecution goes, just a little bit of compromise would be a big help to allow the people of of God in Pergamum to continue worshiping their God. And now, compromise is a good thing often. Compromise is a wonderful thing in, in, uh, in matters of preference and personal taste. It's a tool for peace. It's a tool for unity. Compromise is a way that we can meet in the middle. It's a way that everybody can win a little bit. But when it comes to our allegiance to Jesus Christ alone, I cannot say it clearer, there is no room for compromise. I mean, just think about the way that Jesus describes his relationship with us throughout the Bible, right? He calls himself the king, and we are his subjects. And there has never been any king that has been okay with his people submitting to him and also another throne. He calls himself the bridegroom and us his bride. And there has never been a husband in the history of the world who has been okay with his wife going and being with another man. There's no room for compromise in these areas. He is the master, the Lord, and we are his servants. And a servant is not okay, or sorry, a master is not okay with his servants going to serve a different master. Jesus says it, you cannot serve two masters. While compromise can be a good thing in matters of preference or personal taste, there is no room for compromise when it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ. He is jealous. He will not share us. He wants our total allegiance, and that is the way it should be. Because we are in covenant with Him, like a marriage with Him. And so with Jesus, there is no room for compromise, but in Pergamum, there were some who compromised their allegiance to the one true God. So what should they do? What should the Christians in in Pergamum do because of this compromised allegiance that is amongst them? 
Jesus gives them a really simple answer in the next verse. Verse 16, we'll read all the way to the end. Verse 17. He says, therefore, repent. That's all the instruction he gives. (laughs) Therefore, repent. Repentance is simply turning from one thing to another. For our situation, it's, it's repenting, turning from sin to Christ. Here, from compromise to allegiance. From mixing our worship to faithful worship of the one true God. So he says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, uh, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So what do you do about those who compromise their allegiance to the one true God? The answer is repent. Stop compromising. Stop worshiping God and anything. Worship me alone, Jesus says. Give your allegiance back to me alone. Because... If you continue compromising your allegiance to me, then this sword of judgment is for you. But if you repent, if you repent of your compromise, if you turn from your worship of idols and give your allegiance once again to me, the one true God, what will I do? Well, I will give some of you the hidden manna. He's talking about the bread of life. He's talking about what Jesus talked about in John chapter 6 when he says that he is the bread of God who comes down from heaven to give light to the world. In other words, repent because I will give you life in myself. Repent of your compromise and give your allegiance once again to the one true God and I will give him the white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, if these people were Jews, they would know that this was an echo of an Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah, or sorry, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 9, where God engraves on a stone at the same time as he removes the sins of the people. So repent, and I will give you forgiveness in myself. All symbols aside, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying... He's saying the gospel truth, that eternal life and forgiveness are found by repenting of our sins and returning to Jesus Christ alone, giving our full allegiance to him, the one true God. This is the gospel. It's the good news of life and forgiveness found by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It might be communicated with all these symbols, but this is the foundational truth of the entire Bible. This is the the foundational truth of everything that we believe. Now correct me if I'm wrong, or maybe not now, but but later. (laughs) But not many of you frequent pagan temples. Maybe give me a thumbs up, thumbs down. No pagan temples? Great, awesome. Uh, Not many of you have incense burning at home to little metal images of gods. That's not the temptation that many of us are drawn to. So, What do we do with this? Because this is talking about dividing your allegiance between the one true God and an idol. 
But the reality is that we are just as prone to compromise our allegiance to the one true God as the church in Pergamum. We are just as prone to look at God and to have our needs met, to find our, our, our desires uh, fulfilled. The only difference between our idols and their idols is that theirs are made of gold and stone and ours are not. Theirs are kept in human temples. Ours are kept in human hearts. An idol, Tim Keller says, is anything that's more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. That's what an idol is. And we definitely struggle with that. Let me read that definition again. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is more important to you than God. I mean, because if you're, if you're here today and you're a Christian, you wouldn't ever say, I care about this thing more than God. That's, we wouldn't say that. But when we look at our thoughts, when we look at our actions, when we look at our emotions, when we look at the res- our responses to different things, we start to recognize, hey, hold on, wait a minute. I do seem to care about this thing or more than God. I do seem to rely upon this thing more than God. I do seem to find my joy and my hope and my peace in this thing, this person, more than God. And so what we need to do this morning is we need, to, we need to take an inventory of our lives. We need to look at everything, the good things, the neutral things, and the bad things, and ask ourselves, honestly, do I love these things more than God? I'm just going to ask you a series of questions. Take this time to really take inventory of your heart and ask yourself, do I care about this thing, this person, more than God? Is there anything in your life that, if it's threatened, makes your claws come out? Maybe it's your reputation, or maybe your political views. That if it's threatened, you get inordinately mad. Is there anything that, depending on how it's going, controls your emotions? Maybe the health of your marriage? Maybe your bank account? Maybe the success of your kids in school? Or is there anything that you are willing to disobey God for? The approval of of some person? Or maybe the opportunity to to experience a certain thing again. Is there something in your life that you spend an inordinate amount of money on? That you give an inordinate amount of time to? That occupies an inordinate amount of headspace? Is there anything that you find yourself waking up regularly thinking about? Is there anything that you find yourself constantly talking about? While none of these answers might flawlessly identify your idols, all of them might be signposts pointing towards different things in your life that you have given too much attention. Things that you might have put above God. Things that might be more important to you than Him. And so let me just give you a couple options. Maybe you've made an idol of your comfort. I know I do that. Maybe for you, having a home with everything in order that's your own personal holy of holies is really important to you. And you can know that you've done that if you lose it, when you lose it. (laughs) 
When the peace and comfort of your home is compromised, you lose your temper. Or maybe you've made an idol of your security, a financial foundation that cannot be shaken. And you can know that you've made that an idol if you can't sleep at night when your balance gets low. Or maybe you wake up at night if your, balance, if your budget is out of whack. Maybe you've made an idol of your career, wanting to achieve your own definition of success to be seen as important or highly productive. And you can know if that's become an idol if you just lay in bed at night grumbling about that person who got that promotion before you. Or maybe if you're willing to sacrifice time with your family or your church family for the sake of your own advancement. Or maybe you've made an idol out of politics. Seeing the victory of your party or your social cause as the greatest good that humanity could ever receive. You can know if you've made politics an idol, if you get angry when you hear anybody disagrees with your opinion. Or if you find that your relationships with people you disagree with have all fizzled, and so that everyone that you are currently in relationship with, peaceful relationship with, are those who agree with your political views. Or maybe you've made family your idol, having perfect children and a happy marriage. And you can tell if you've made that an idol if it devastates you when your kids make a mistake. If it devastates you when your marriage hits a road bump. And I'm sure you can tell all of these idols, they're not necessarily bad things. They're good things here. You should seek and work for a healthy family, a healthy healthy marriage. You should work hard at your job. These aren't necessarily bad things. Some are good Some are neutral. I don't know if any are bad. Maybe not. But be free. What we have to do is we have to honestly search our heart and ask ourselves, is there something you love more than God? Because I get it. It was really easy for me to come up with that list because I think that whole list describes me. I think that at one time or in some way in my life, I have made an idol of all those things in one way. Or another. It was easy to think of them. But I'm going to add one more for myself. One more idol in my own life that really does trump all other idols. And I want to specifically share it because I'd be surprised if I'm the only one in the room who makes an idol of this thing. And this is an idol of my reputation. I care so much what you think about me. I want you to think I'm great. Everything I do, I want the people around me to see and to think, wow, he is incredible. I know that I've made my reputation an idol because if I ever make a bad impression, and I know I've made a bad impression, I think about it for days. If I made a bad impression to like the convenience store clerk, I think about it for a week. It so deeply matters to me what that person who I'm never going to see again thinks about me. Another thing is, you know, I'll, I'll have a conversation with somebody and I'll know that I said something a little bit stupid halfway through and the one thing I think about the entire drive home is how I wish I hadn't said that thing. I get shivers when I think about it. I care so deeply about what people think about me. If I fail at something, especially fail publicly, I start questioning my worth. If my reputation gets threatened, I get defensive and aggressive. Even if I just keep it to myself, The hard truth for me to acknowledge 
is that I want my college friends to get on Facebook and think, wow, Ben's doing really good. I want my parents and my wife and my daughters to look with me at pride and just think, man, I'm lucky to be related to him. I want my neighbors to look out the stinking window and think, wow, what a great homeowner. All this matters to me so much. And I just, I'd be so surprised if I'm alone there. Because I could go on with other things that I idolize. But these things become idols when I care more about these things than I care about God. For my own personal situation, when I come down off this stage after preaching, caring more whether you think I preached a good sermon than if you love God more as a result of this. That hurts. So what do I do now? I have an idol. What do I do with my idol? How do I respond? What do I, how do I repent? Because that's what Jesus calls us to do. That's what he calls me to do, to repent of this idol. So what does that look like? I need to find what my idols are. I need to turn from those idols, tear them down, and give my allegiance back solely to the one true God. How? Because the reality is you can't force these things down on your own willpower. You can't, by your own strength, on your own, remove that idol from the altar of your life. The reality is it's impossible to decide to care less about something. And even if you could get yourself to do that, it wouldn't stick. You go right back to caring about that thing again as soon as you stop giving your attention to fighting it. The only way to dethrone your idols is by putting someone else on the throne. The only way to take your idols off the altar of your life is by putting somebody else in that seat of worship. The only way for you to actually succeed in turning your allegiance back to the one true God is by focusing not on what needs to be dethroned as much as the one who needs to be rethroned. And that's the way we fight our idols, by seeking Jesus Christ. By seeking Him. When we seek Him, our idols will be revealed as cheap imitations of what they are. When we seek Him and we find joy and delight in Him, these temporary things that claim to satisfy us will be shown to not actually offer us the things that they promise to offer us. Your job can't give you the satisfaction that it promises. Your family cannot give you the satisfaction you hope that it can. Your marriage, it can't do it. Finances, it can't do it. It can't give you the hope and the peace and the joy that you can find only in Jesus Christ and if you look to those things for that satisfaction, you will not only be hurting your relationship with Jesus Christ, you will be hurting your relationship with those things. You will crush your spouse. You will crush your kids. You will become immoral at your job. You will misuse your finances. You could go on and on and on. The only way to combat idolatry in your own life is to fix your eyes once again on the one true God. So repent, turn from your idols, and turn to the one who is worthy of our worship and our praise. Give your allegiance back to the one true God. Be free, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, I, I am convicted 
this was a painful passage for me to wrestle through. Because it was so easy to hear about a church that worshipped metal gods and gods of stone and think, well, I don't do that. Father, I know that there are constantly things that I turn to looking for hope and joy that are not you. I care more so often about the health of my, my family more than my own relationship with you. I care so much more so often about the health of our church. Give more time to, the, to thinking about the things of our church than the things of you. Father, reveal in all of us our idols. Reveal in us the things that are nudging you away from the center of our lives. And Father, I pray that you would help us be constantly vigilant to seek out those idols, to tear down those idols, and to refix our eyes back on you, the King of glory, the one through whom we receive all joy and blessing. Because Father, you are worthy of that space in our life. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy to be given all the glory. And so, Father, do this work in us, starting now and then continuing throughout the entirety of our lives. Do not let us put anything above you, Lord. We love you, God, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.